You know, I think sometimes we think basketball is a coach's game that we kindly allow the players to be involved in rather than being a player game that we get to have an involvement in. And that's not a small difference, you know, trying to get that across to young coaches who are ambitious and in a hurry. It's like, you know, hold it, players first, and then we'll fit in where we fit in. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the Director of High Performance Coaching Development for Basketball Australia, Peter Lonergan. Coach Lonergan is here today to discuss on-court coaching development, the power of three, flight path coaching, we talk teaching creativity and improving one-on-one drills during the always fun start, sub, or sit. With members from the MBA to high school levels, we're excited to continue building a highly valuable learning and community platform called SG+. With SG+, we aim to bring the highest quality and deepest insights of the game from around the world on a weekly basis through our almost 600 video archive on SGTV private coaching community app, and our long read Sunday morning newsletter. If you're looking to explore and learn the game on a deeper level, or just save yourself time searching the internet for the best backdoor plays in Europe, visit slappingglass.com today and see why current members are calling it an essential platform for high-level coaching anywhere. We hope to see you there. And now... Please enjoy our conversation with Coach Peter Lonergan. Coach, thank you very much for making the time for us. There's a lot to dive into today. We're excited to have you on the show. No, thanks, guys. As we've discussed earlier, I'm a big fan, and I think it rolls off the tongue, Van Gundy, Dan Tony, Lonergan. So... <laughs> <laughs> Part of the big three. That's right. <laughs> Coach... The thing that we want to just go into right away is developing coaches. And I know your role with Basketball Australia is to help develop coaches from all levels, men's side, women's side, and you've done that for a number of years. And so to start, when you think about developing coaches or working with a younger coach to develop them in all phases of the game, where do you start? The big mantra that I've got with coach development is more conversations. You know, you can't develop a coach via emails. You can't develop a coach by frameworks, by metric dashboards or whatever other business method that people have put out there. It's just simply more conversations. I always joke that I do it through the John Candy method, which probably ages me a little bit, but planes, trains and automobiles, you've got to do it in 3D. Just spending time with people, traveling around, having lots of conversations And like anything with learning, asking more questions than pushing out information. And usually that leads you to a pretty worthwhile conversation and gives you a bit of a framework to move on with. I love the John Candy reference, by the way. But when you, let's say, get a young coach and you're going to start working with them and you're having these conversations right now, currently, what do you find yourself discussing over and over again when it comes to the profession of coaching and developing as a person that way? Really speaking a lot about teaching and how people learn. 
you know, I was fortunate when I was coaching and coming up, I had great mentors. So it was just, you know, you just watch, you take notes and then you just reproduce that. Life's a little bit different now. I'm a thousand years old. So things are a little bit different with young coaches. How can we help them be a better teacher? And how can we get them to understand how people learn? Not trying to turn it into a PhD course, but I think the modern player values learning. So we've got to make sure that we're teaching as well as coaching. Coach, how are you helping coaches become better teachers? What are you specifically trying to encourage them to do? Just a bit more intentional practice with their coaching and try and move the needle away from, I guess, that older style, you know, my way or the highway. You know, we've had a lot of conversations. I was just in Tasmania last weekend and spent a lot of time with terrific young coaches. And I said, don't mistake volume with repetition. You know, so just being real intentional, take eight really worthwhile jumpers off the pin down and then move on to something else rather than say, hey, we're going to get 50 makes. So, you know, just trying to be a bit more intentional that your role is to help the player. Your role is to grow their knowledge and embrace that. You know, I think sometimes we think basketball is a coach's game that we kindly allow the players to be involved in rather than being a player game that we get to have an involvement in. And that's not a small difference, you know, trying to get that across to young coaches who are ambitious and in a hurry. It's like, you know, hold it, players first, and then we'll fit in where we fit in. And on the example you use where maybe it's better to get them eight shots than 50, looking at now how the younger generation or the players nowadays are learning, how are you then explaining to coaches again to help them understand like this newer generation and how they learn and how that should influence their coaching. I often use my kids as an example. I've got a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. They never listen to a full song. They never watch a full movie. They never watch a full game of basketball. You know, they do things in sound bites. Now, you know, we can be the old man on the porch and say, oh, back in my day. But the reality is that's who we're coaching now. We're coaching a soundbite society. So we've got a coaching soundbite. And that doesn't mean that we shortchange it, that we take shortcuts or whatever else, but we've got to be really intentional, really detailed, get them to do it with great focus and intention, then move on to the next song or move on to the next highlight and do it that way. And I guess get them to learn how they live is one of the big catchphrases we use. You know, young people, get them to learn how they live. We've had a lot of fun recording a brand new segment on the show, a 10 to 15 minute wrap up session where we go through our pre-podcast prep, that's a lot of peas. our favorite parts of the episode, questions we may have missed, backstories, or anything else relevant to the episode. We hope you stick around to the end, and now back to our conversation. Coach, just hearing you talk about these sound bites and moving on, I guess when then you help these players talk about practice planning, you know, how many themes or areas should a coach be working on? I guess, is there a point where it's like too much, maybe you're doing too much and not really hitting on one thing. I think as coaches, like you said, the old school is just, we're just going to pound it into submission. But now if you're telling them more to, you know, value less reps, but the quality over the quantity, and then I guess how much should you be doing in a practice? If you look at maybe just general topics or teaching aspects. I mean, I think all, you know, you guys are a hell of a lot younger than me, but our mentors, you know, practice plan, make sure you cover everything. My mentor is from the Dick Bennett coaching tree. So we structured practice like Coach Bennett. 
And then I started coaching. I did exactly the same. We're going to cover all these things. Now it's a bit more do less but do it better. For an example, like Chip England, the great shooting coach from San Antonio now at OKC, he'll do stuff for 20 minutes and just do one thing for 20 minutes. You know, focus, you know, and be intentional. Now, so when I say one thing, he'll focus on one skill or concept. He might do two different methods, but it's one thing and then that's done. They are then go and practice or he moves on to the next thing. So, you know, we talk a lot about layering drills. So if we work in the jump shot, we talk about the four phases of the jump shot, shooting form, the kinetic chain, repetition, situational. So you can shoot nonstop for 25 minutes. It's a long training block, but you've covered those four areas in a real intentional way in that period of time. Coach, to follow you on that tangent for a second, could you just a little bit deeper on, I think it was the second point you just made about the four phases, which is the kinetic chain? Yeah, just a fancy way to say, how do we link the technique with what the body does? For years, we've spoken about get power from your legs and do this with your elbow and do this with your wrist and, you know, the follow through where really, if you look at the greatest shooters, it's a fluid movement. It's not clunky. So why do we teach it in these big parts when it's actually one fluid motion, the most beautiful shooters in the world, you know, obviously Steph Curry being the gold standard. Mm -hmm. So what's it look like to create energy from the floor, not through the floor? from the floor. So we've got that up force. How do we transfer energy through the kinetic chain from our legs into our core, into our upper body, and then into that real fine motor skill at the top? So it's just spending time teaching basic anatomy, you know, rather than break it into these parts. And as you know, young players get confused because they're literal learners. So they're trying to do all these parts. And yet we're saying, hey, make it a fluid motion. It's a bit contradictory. Circling back a little bit to the coaching stuff, there's all different phases of coaching that I'm sure when someone comes to you or you're helping develop coaches, there's the technical, the tactical, the relationship piece, the strategic piece. There's all these different parts of coaching and kind of we're talking about maybe being able to teach a technical part of shooting. When you get coaches in and they are, say, stronger or weaker in one of these areas, how do you assess trying to help them improve in all of them or you just stick with a strength or what do you do with all those different areas? Yeah, just again, it loops back to the first conversation we had is how can they be better teachers? So shooting is a great example and, you know, obviously shooting is the master skill. But a lot of coaches that don't have a significant playing background, which I'm one of them, or they might have been non-shooters, they might have been that guy when the ball swung to them, the coach, the balls in there, the coaches yell, Swing it, swing it. <laughs> Hold up, just let me catch it first, and I promise I'll cover. <laughs> yeah. So then they think I couldn't shoot. So how can I teach shooting? So what they do is they drill shooting. They don't teach shooting, right? So loop it back. How can you be an effective teacher? We know you've got the knowledge. I don't care if you can do it or not, but how can you develop as a practitioner? Because that's what coaches are—they're practitioners. So just trying to demystify some of the skills because the easiest place for young coaches to go is the tactical. If I ask 10 of our better, you know, 25 and below years coaches, they could diagram and show and show me film like you guys do such a great job of, of the Warriors splits offense, but they can't teach cutting. So in essence, they can run the splits offense, 
but the splits offense is geared around cutting and they can't teach cutting. Back cut, basket cut, curl cut, flare cut, straight cut. So just trying to demystify things a little bit and always bring it back to teaching. That's a really intimidating question for young coaches sometimes. How do you teach this? And the first thing they want to do is open their computer and show you some clips, the video world, I get it. Just tell me, what's your power of three on teaching cutting? What's your power of three on teaching shooting, teaching closeout? And then we build from that. The power of three, I guess. What do you mean by that? I think sometimes if everything's a priority, nothing is. You know, if I was to say to you, what's the most important three things in the closeout? Acceleration, deceleration, catch the first bounce with square hips. So that's my three on the closeout. What's your three? doesn't have to be the same as mine. Now you've got a roadmap for teaching skill. And whether it's three or four, you know, psychology indicates that that's why they call it the power of three. The three step quite powerful in the cognitive process. So if a coach has got three points for stance, footwork, closeout, containment, change of stance, box out, post it, now they're a pretty good coach. Yeah. You know, so now that each of those power of three, they've got like a hundred bullet points. You guys call it bullet points to build their coaching on. That's great. And coach, I think it kind of led nicely to the conversation that you were having with the younger generation, how, I mean, they're very good in technology. They have everything on film, but sometimes it's hard for them to teach. Working with so many young coaches, what do you see as being their weaknesses in this newer generation of coaches that are coming up? I think their strengths are their weaknesses, which is often the case in life, isn't it? Young coaches have got an unbelievable ability to learn and absorb information. And it's part of they live their life, you know, with social media, the internet, so much access to information. I mean, look at the site you guys run. It's just phenomenal how much access there is to knowledge there, right? So they're great at that and they're great at technology. Now, the problem is they've got too much going on here. It's just the big bowl of vegetable soup in here. And they hide behind technology. So I know it sounds funny and it's probably a cop-out question, but the strength is definitely that. The weakness is definitely that. The amount of times, to me, everyone's young. I'm a 1,000 years old. When I say, hey, you know, can you show me about this? They say, yeah, I've got some clips. And then I say, if you open that computer, I'm going to fling it across the wall. <laughs> can you just tell me what your thoughts are on the flex offense? Go. So I just think that, it's a bit of an instant gratification, you know, rather than understanding the flow. But So there's an impatience. You take these two groups of people, basketball coaches, young people. What have they got in common? Big time impatience. They want result. They want to get it done now. So you put those two together and you got this high achiever who just wants to fix the problem tomorrow where we know it's often a slower burn. And coach, We've talked a lot about teaching, how they learn, and you know. then we've been alluding to just they're very well-versed in tactics. Well, when we start to look at, I think, a big component of being a coach is you're also like a part-time psychologist and understanding relationship dynamics. How are you helping coaches in that field? It is a big area of focus for us. And really, that's the game changer. If, if you can develop connection and buy-in, you can develop trust belief in themselves, belief in the team, belief in you, you know, that's going to make a difference. Everyone that you're competing against is going to be a quote-unquote good coach. They're going to run good stuff. They're going to go to slap and glass and see 
the best action from EuroLeague and say, that's me. I mean, I'm going to run that. I'm the second coming of Ray Messina. <laughs> <laughs> but what they don't realize that, you know, Coach Messina or Coach Gorgian, who you've had on the show, brilliant X's and O's, brilliant tactically, technically, but his greatest strength is connection. His players love playing for him. They'll follow him anywhere and whatever, and he spends a disproportionate amount of time in that area. So, you know, the big words that we use and we try and talk to not just young coaches but everyone, you know, it's connection. How are you connected? Are you having more conversations? Are you finding out about them more than just as basketball players? You know, do you know what's going on with their families, with their relationships, with the school, with, you know, whatever else? And then are you creating a psychologically safe environment? Doesn't mean that you're not barking at them the odd time and holding them to account, but do they feel your environment is somewhere that they want to be at, that they're going to learn, they're going to grow, they're going to improve, whether that's in a school competition or even pro, you know, is it a psychologically safe environment? And that can be intimidating for everyone and it can be intimidating for the coach developer because I'm not a psychologist. I don't have formal skills in that, but I understand the importance of it. So I'm going to have some conversations about it. Coach, with the buy-in, the connection, everything you just mentioned, you know, for a younger coach who's not as confident, unless they has the cachet as an older coach to command a room, command a group of people, what do you see with younger coaches who are trying to make connections, to command a team, to create this environment? Because that's hard to do for someone that's, say, in their 20s or 30s to really create a nice environment. What do you help them with or what are little ways that they can do these things kind of on a daily basis as they're growing and maturing as a coach? We talk a lot about flight path coaching. And what I mean by that is I'm going to get across Pat's flight path at some stage in a practice. To me, practice starts the minute the first player arrives at the venue, right? So if Pat's out shooting three throws, I'm going to, as a coach or an assistant, I'm going to go and rebound for him and have a conversation. It might only be for two, three minutes because I'll move on to the next guy. So I'm getting across his flight path. And then you're doing it, again, soundbite society, you know, you're doing it in little bits, but it's not as intimidating. I think there's a certain element of coaching that everyone thinks there has to be Vince Lombardi or Coach Smith or Greg Popovich, you know, like a great orator. I'm going to stand in front of the room and we're going to build culture. That's really hard, as you said. It doesn't matter if you're 25, 35, or 55. We encourage just more conversations, do it in a more informal setting more often, get your staff to be part of it, and you've got the same level of messaging. So all of a sudden, it's almost subliminal. It's not Muhammad coming down from the mountain with a stone tablet, thou shalt be a good team. It's not. That sounds a little wishy-washy, but we've really spent a lot of time on that. You know, so... You know, the three-throw rebounding situation's great. Trainer's room's great. You know, just walk past while they're on the training table and it's two, three minutes, but you're getting a little feel for it. And then you can build it from there rather than build it, you know, from this great Nick Saban, we're going to bring in, sit in a theater and I'm going to, you know, preach. And coach, maybe this kind of ties into another part of developing coaches that Pat and I were talking about before, and I know you've spoken about, and that's coaching interventions, or that's actually like on the court coaching during a practice and kind of tying in everything we've just talked about. 
you know, especially younger coaches where they have all the information, probably too much information in their head about what to do, adjustments, things they can do, and then helping them actually in practice, you know, maybe talk less, speak in the short sound bites like you mentioned, but just actually have good coaching interventions as a younger coach. We're lucky here at the Center of Excellence in Canberra. We have Brett Brown, who's coached our national team, now an assistant at San Antonio, visit us for a few days and we just spent time with him. I was lucky because I was hosting him. So we had breakfast, we had coffee and, and I'd just ask questions and he'd roll. His big thing, what's most important, WMI? And he spent a lot of time, that was his theme. Okay, so in interventions, what's most important? What do you tolerate? What's the line of tolerance? What you walk past is what you tolerate. And that's not a negative, right? So we speak to coaches about communicating what the line of acceptance is in terms of what are we going to walk past? What are we okay with? And what are we going to stop every time? You know, I think that's important. Less is always best. You know, you've got to check yourself at different times. You see coaches and they, and they, they physically like, I've stopped myself. It's not time to stop practice now. It's not time to intervene. And one of the tools, and it's interesting, just before I jumped on, I was talking to one of our young assistants, fantastic coach. His name's Ash Arnott. We're going to put him with a GoPro on his chest and he's going to wear it during practice. So when he runs his skill and concept work and then he does a lot of the defensive stuff here, he's just got a GoPro so he doesn't really even know it's on. Then he and I are going to sit and watch that. Okay, what did you say? What did you see? Do you think you could have intervened then? Do you think you should have intervened then? It can be a bit intimidating because firstly, you know, these guys coach 17 to 19 year old. They're going to tease him ruthlessly about having this camera on his chest. But the reflective piece about interventions is, you know, we did it with another coach and they said, you know what, I've stopped it three times to say the same thing three times. And I said, yeah, it's not the end of the world, but it's really good reflection. So try and avoid that. Try and get that down to doing it twice, then get down to do it once. But I think the really good coaches, are great at that, you know, taking a lot of information and then it's a little soundbite. You know, if you've ever been to a Duke practice, Krzyzewski, he was doing soundbites before there was soundbite. He's got this great ability to take all this information and just go bang and you go, oh, God, I'm a terrible basketball coach. I've never said it that way. But he's a reasonable basketball coach. So, again, we'll try and narrow it if we can. <laughs> coach, we mentioned soundbites a lot and terminology. How do you help? players kind of develop their terminology or think about ways they can condense complicated actions into a one or two word soundbite? Practice, you know, just have coaches practice communicating trial and error. My wife's a teacher, has been for you know 25 years. So I lean on her about how people learn, how you teach, how you're efficient, language. She talks about one and two syllable words, one syllable words that end abruptly, like, you know, gap, help, things like that defensively. I think sometimes we think players are mini coaches and we're out there just impressing them and ourselves with this great language and no one's really got a clue what we mean. So I spend a lot of time saying to coaches, you know, use that term for that. Why do you use that term? Well, what's that term mean? And they'll repeat the word, giving you the definition of what it means. Oh, okay. So bingo actually means bingo. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> you know, you're not trying to embarrass anyone. So, mate, it's fine. Use it. But does your staff understand? Do your players understand? And 
Is it descriptive? I don't care what you call things. Does it create a picture, an action picture for the player? I've been guilty of being the jargon king. You know, I'm out there just impressing myself. I do a lot of clinics now, so I'm out there just impressing myself with my knowledge. And I look over and there's all these people just glazed over and going, hold it, hold it Pete, it's not about you. You've actually got to impart some knowledge. <laughs> Coach, when you're working with younger coaches and inevitably as they become better learners and teachers of the game, as they're growing and trying to you know, make it in the industry, there is the pressure to win in order to get the next job. And how do you work with them on their relationship with winning and wanting, needing to win to gain exposure and jobs and also kind of have that balance of being a good teacher? That's a constant challenge for me because I've got the best coaching job in the world. I've been in my job for nearly seven years. I haven't won or lost a game. No one's threatened to sack me because I went on an 0-7 run. And I've got to make sure that I don't become holier than that. I don't know why this guy doesn't do that. Why did he do that? I mean, surely he saw this, you know. So firstly, me having a, an understanding, hey, it's hard to win and lose games. And secondly, make him understand that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can be a better teacher. The stuff about psychological safety and connection and buy-in, you can do all that and that will help you win. So I use a lot of examples for young coaches of people who've won at a high level but have got great relationships. They've won at a high level, but have had great player development. And just making them understand that it's not mutually exclusive. You know, it's like that term players coach. You know, 15 years ago, if someone said, oh, that guy's a players coach, that was seen as a criticism. Now, if you say it, people are like, yeah, he's fantastic. You know, Steve Kerr, Billy Donovan, strong relationship guys, whatever else. So, I try and use those examples. The best example, and I know I've raised his name a couple of times, but you know we've got the greatest example as our national coach, Brian. His emotional connection is elite. His player development is beyond reproach, and all he does is win. So I try and use that. Hey, you know, you don't have to be yelling and screaming. You don't. Sometimes people say, "Oh, it's, that's all too warm and fuzzy." So they see it as mutually. You're either, you're either a nice person or you're a basketball coach. Which one? We're trying to bring it here together a little bit. But, yeah, acknowledging, hey, it's hard. And I say to young coaches all the time, hey, I feel your pain. I was a coach that coached for wins and losses and didn't survive. That's why I do what I do. I acknowledge that what they're doing is hard and there is challenges and I'm not pretending to have all the answers. If I could just ask a quick follow-up. You just mentioned for you, you got out not surviving. Was there a specific reason? Yeah, the stress was one, the losses in Australia, we have a lot of tournament coaching or you might play maximum two games a week. So the, the time between one game and the next game is significant. That's great if you've won. You're bouncing around and sipping on lattes and thinking life's great. If you lose, it's like you're churning for like seven, eight days until you get the next opportunity. And I did churn too much. And the other thing, I just realized that I wasn't very good at it. I'm not saying I'm a genius at what I do now, but my coaching style, philosophy, personality was more, I consider myself a coach of coaches. I really admire people who stay with it. You know, I, every time I'm following Twitter, the NCAA's on, I'm seeing those guys losing their job and I'm just bleeding for them because, you know, last year they were a great coach and then all of a sudden someone's decided now they're not a very good coach, which I, we all know is not the case. So yeah, a bit of that is trying to stick with strengths, but also understanding what you're good at and what you maybe you're not so good at. 
Coach, my last question for you kind of has to do with the connection piece. And you mentioned it earlier that going away, moving away more from demand, being a demanding coach, but there are going to be times in the season where a coach has to be critical. Of course, number one is having a good relationship in place, but what are you maybe warning or talking to coaches about as far as how often they can maybe go to that? The first thing, it's got to be grounded in empathy. So it's got to be for the right reasons and you've got to display an understanding of the challenge. It's hard to be a player, right? It's hard to be a high-performing player. So it's got to be grounded with empathy. You talk more about accountabilities, you know, so, you know, these are the accountabilities, these are the expectations. So when you don't reach those, and players will say to you, oh, I want to be held to account. Now, 10 years ago, I said, well, be careful what you wish for. You know, I can be Bob Knight now. I'm going to go after him every single day. But it's more about holding to account and think about it as feedback. You know, if I get after you, I'm going to make sure there's a message in it. It can't just be rah, rah, rah. I can still give you a bait. Mm -hmm. I, I can still hold you to account and it's tense, but there's a message in it. You're more likely to absorb it because it's feedback. See feedback as an opportunity and teach your players that feedback's an opportunity. But to your point, you know, you're going to get it back from the modern player. Not get it back like he's going to start swearing or she's going to come after you, but, you know, hey, well, I'm holding you up account because you said this and you haven't lived up to it. You know, the biggest test of a leader slash coach is make sure you do what you say you're going to do. And if you don't, expect it back. Then you can't play the coach card. you got to play the human being card, right? Now, that doesn't mean it's a democracy because it ain't. Players not getting sacked at the end of the 4 and 27 season. As long as it's grounded in empathy and it's feedback. Coach, just to finish it up, when for whatever reason, the coach made the mistake, he was too critical. And like you said, I think we talked about me and Dan, the player goes in like quiet defiance. I mean, they're not going to sit there and yell back at you, but they just stop doing what you say. How would you rebuild that trust or get that player back in line? I mean, where does then rebuilding relationships start when it's kind of been cracked? Well, two things, flight path coaching. So, you know, if it's so, I've done it as a head coach, I'll sort of get eye contact with my assistant and not go over and do that. Oh, look, coach didn't really mean yeah. it. The players hate that even more, you know. Yeah. They might walk past the player and say, hey, man, you good? And, you know, the player grunt. Yeah. You know, but that's the first almost acknowledgement of it. But also, you know, and it's not a, do you want to run around saying, hey, that's my bad. Sorry, I didn't, you know, like didn't mean because that undermines you as the leader. Then the next thing, you get across the flight path. And it could be as simple as they're heading to the water cooler to get their drink and get past there. And you, hey, man, are we good? And sometimes that will diffuse it. It's almost a subconscious acknowledgement. Hey, I might have pushed too much there. If there's underlying resentment, then you've got to get across a bit more than their flight path. So, hey, can we meet? But not in your office. Because all you've done is reestablish the hierarchy. You know, the, the big one is that walking meeting. Say in, in your world, you know, collegiately, hey, you know, and I see you got physics at 10 o'clock tomorrow. If I meet you out in front of Dawn, can we, that 15 minutes, can we talk? You know, and there's no one listening. So if he or she wants to say, hey, man, you're big time out of line. They've got the psychological safety to do it. And then you can have that conversation. Meetings in the coach's office, they went out with flared pants. No one wants to. <laughs> We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. 
Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Coach, this has been great so far. Thanks for all your thoughts on that. Yeah. We want to transition now to a segment we call start, sub, or sit. So for those maybe listening for the first time, we'll give you three different options here. Ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we'll have a fun little discussion from there. So if you're ready, coach, we'll dive into this first one. Yeah, be sure. Okay. This first start, sub, sit has to do with improving one-on-one drills. And I'm going to give you three different constraints that coaches might put on a one-on-one drill. And your start would be maybe your favorite constraint to make that a better one-on-one playing drill. So the first option is a shot clock, putting a shot clock limit. The second option is putting a dribble limit. And the third option is putting some kind of shot spectrum limit. So a type of shot that they have to try to get to as a constraint. So start, sub, or sit to improve a one-on-one drill. Start shot clock, four second, six second shot clock. Well, you know, do it with context. Make sure that you get it right so they don't feel rushed. Sub shot spectrum, it's a constraint. It's more game-like. And then sit and preferably, you know, in the bleachers, the dribble limit. And look, don't get me wrong. I used to do dribble limits for a thousand years. It's so stupid because, okay, two dribbles. Well, some really good one-on-one dribbles need three. And how often have you done it where the kid's taken two dribbles and they're about to score on a third and they go, oh, turnover. Now, keep playing. Oh, no, you said two dribbles. So the shot clock's heaps better, and that's more game-like. I mean, you know, if you're coaching Kyrie, you couldn't put a dribble in. I mean, he might score in four seconds, but off five dribbles because he's so talented with the ball. So why put that constraint? I'm always critical internally of coaches you have on. They never answer start, <laughs> yeah. do they? Look at a big notes. Make yeah. sure you answer it properly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some are better than others, that's for sure. But I appreciate yeah. <laughs> giving all three answers, definitely. My follow-up, I'd like to start with your start. I've actually heard you talk about this, about one-on-one being a really important part of developing kind of a, a defensive player and how much you do enjoy the one-on-one aspect. And I'd like to just ask you more about the shot clock and putting a four to six second shot clock rather than a, a dribble limit makes it a better drill. To be honest, I try and talk to as many smart people as I can, and then I steal what they tell me and claim it as my own. And part of it, you know, Damien Cotto at the Bulls is a good friend of mine, and obviously they do a lot of one-on-one, and so I pick his brain about how do they develop players, what do they do, whatever. It's interesting. There's a huge focus in Australia on small-sided games. My big thing is the best small-sided game is the ultimate small-sided game, one-on-one. You know, because you can teach so much on it and, you know, particularly defensively. If you can close out with high hands, if you can catch it with square hips, if you can defend the first two bounces, you're a good one-on-one defender. So the only way to get that done is to practice it a lot off closeouts, off short closeouts, off handoffs where the handoff guy gets out, you know, just do more situational approaches that way. And then the shot clock gives it some context. It's more game-like. There's a shot clock in the game. And usually you've only got 
four seconds to make a play. Now that's either make a play at the rim, pull up and shot, or move it on. I think it's just better context. Okay. Coach, how dynamic of a start do you make the one-on-one in terms of offensively and defensively? You know, is it you're filling up? Is the defense maybe helping and then closing out? I guess more a situational one-on-one approach to the drill. Two things, yeah, you've got to add some context. It's got to look like what might happen in a game. And I'm not one to criticise drills because every time you criticise a drill, someone will ring and say, hey, you coached me in 1995 and we did that every practice. Like corridor, zigzag, I don't know what you guys call it, you know, zigzag, one-on-one containment, you know, it's still got merit, but it doesn't have any context. So how can we take a pretty sound drill, add some context, you know, so can they defend a turnout into one-on-one, you know, closeouts, the big one. Can they navigate a pin down into one-on-one? Usually you've had to do something mm-hmm. before you've played one-on-one. So that's what we should practice. The old ball check, and I did that for years, it's not a great environment. The other thing we'll do is, you know, rehearse to live. It'll be a bit more of like a drill and then tell them we're going to rehearse great technique, then play live. So we might get the player to hold the offensive player hold so the closeouts are more contained environment. Once they've got great feet positioning, great hand positioning, now we're going to play live. So they get a bit of both worlds, but that's a huge word in drilling context. Does it look like something's going to happen in a game? Okay. Coach, just my last follow-up in this question is, and you mentioned it before, and maybe this is kind of tying into the developing coaches piece, but mentioned how small-sided games in Australia, a big way to kind of teach. I've also heard you talk about, and I think probably a mutual friend of ours calls it games of purpose. So love to ask you about if a coach is thinking about trying to you know, put in some small-sided games or a games of purpose, what's kind of a baseline way that you help coaches think about those kinds of drills to add to their practice plans or their teaching? Yeah, I love that term from Paul, Games of Purpose. It's interesting, when I first heard it on a very popular podcast, in fact, I heard it in <laughs> my biggest question was always to coaches that have these fantastic small-sided games, and they're a lot smarter than me. I thought, God, I could never run that drive, never remember it. It's got more moving bits than Grand Central Station. It's fantastic. But I always said, what's the purpose? Why are you doing it? And they go, oh, this is the next question of course do the players know because you know what yeah you guys both played like you're in a drill you think it's a drill you're not thinking like a coach you know oh, this is a cool drill right but the coaches are thinking oh look we're really exposing them to all these things so what's the purpose is really important and drill down the complexity to make it contextual i see that now we got some coaches here that are great advocates of small-sided games and do fantastic work with it, and they're great teachers. But it's almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's almost about the drill, not so much about the purpose. So that's why in the latest round of clinics I'm doing, you know, I'm talking about one-on-one as the ultimate small-sided game. You know, So to put a button on it, just make sure everyone's got a clear understanding of what the purpose is. You know, I think there's like... Paul's one of them, real clear purpose. So the kids thrive in it. That's Paul Kelleher for those listening. He had a great episode, gosh, Pat, a couple of years ago now. So shout out to Paul. One of the originals. Coach, getting back to the one-on-one drill is how you just constrain or think about the shot spectrum in a one-on-one. And I think the big thing, which maybe at a certain point becomes inevitable is just bad shots, you know, when it's one-on-one and there is no pass option. So how are you thinking about that and just teaching the value of a good shot? A couple of things is you ask them, good shot, bad shot. You know, so they've got to define, 
you know, and you don't comment, you just ask. It's unfair of me to ask your opinion and then correct you. So first, good shot, bad shot. The next question is, well, in a game, you think you'd take that and they, they'd be like, no, but I've got no one to pass it to. So as long as they've got the context, so tick, tick, but also as a coach, you know what move you want them to do or they're probably going to do. You position yourself and be an outlet for it. So if they really go to their pet move and it's taken away, they've actually got the, even though they're playing one-on-one, they've actually got the option to kick it to you. And then for the sake of the drill, get them the lead, it creates a closeout. We love a good closeout. And then play one-on-one again to live. But also make sure you give them some, it's a great term I've written down twice now with you guys, shot spectrum. You know, I was just talking to our head coach here, Robbie McKinlay, great coach, and we're talking about the finish in the lane off the spin, you know, that little turnaround jumper now that all the elite guards have got off the spin right deep in the lane. Ten years ago, that was seen, that was a bad shot. If someone took that, coach is going crazy and, you know, get him out of there now. I'm saying, well, if the kids don't have that, they can't play. So make sure when you are talking shot spectrum that you're not caught in the 90s, you know, where layup or dunk or one-bounce jump shot or 15 foot, other than that, we pass the ball, you know. So just adding some context and being okay with the answer because, you know, some guys, a good shot, bad shot, a good shot. (laughs) Right. you got to hide your body language. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, mate, good shot if you're Julius Irving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, coach, moving on. Our next start sub sit for you. We call this tough to instill or tough to develop in players. So the three options, the first option is creativity. The second option is toughness. And the third option is unselfishness, getting them to pass, but also just being like a good teammate. I'd start creativity. I spent a lot of time in my career coaching girls basketball, women's basketball, really good players, high achievers, but trying to get them to step outside compliance and be creative is always a challenge and life's hard for kids so they're not as naturally courageous so they try and be as compliant as they can so it might sound funny but that's one of the hardest things to teach and you've got to be able to look away you know sometimes kids will do something that you know you think but if they look over at your body language they've tried to be creative and they look over and they see your body language like oh this kid's you know they'll never do it again so I'd start creativity in terms of that. I'd sub toughness and you know, everyone's going to like, oh, I can't believe you're talking about it. But, you know, what is toughness? You know, is it maintaining a stance? Is it, is it being a great teammate? Is it talking when things are hard? It's, is it maintaining your body language? So it's challenging, but I think you can go on a journey with people. I've had coaches say, oh, you can't teach toughness. I don't agree with that. We're not trying to teach them to be in Creed 4. We just want them to be basketball tough, not MMA tough. I think sit, unselfishness, and again, thanks for the question. They're all really important. But I think most players are unselfish. And you guys have coached at a good level, played at a good level. You know, how many guys really would you say, oh, that guy's just selfish? Maybe they don't understand, so they don't make the decision you want to make. Maybe they're not sure, so they shoot it because I've got no idea what else to do so i'm just going to let this thing fly it's not from screw this i'm getting 50 today there isn't a lot of that so i would start creativity i would sub toughness and then i would sit unselfishness coach great answers i like to just start with creativity and what you said is that you find today's kids are less creative or less courageous why what have you found i just think that society's 
impacts risk takers now. And again, I'm a lot older than you, but we would do a lot of stupid things when we were young guys and then we'd get punished for it and we'd say to ourselves, I'm never doing that again until next Saturday when we did that and then something even worse, you know. And, you know, from a basketball thing, you would try different things without, you know, coach might yell at you, but you'd still get to try it. Now I think kids are more conservative and they're worried about taking risks and they're worried about the impact on those risks a lot more, which if you're talking about driving a motor vehicle, I'm really pleased they're more conservative than I was at 17 behind the wheel. But basketball, we want risk takers, high risk, high reward, creativity. So you've got to give them permission. That's the big thing for me. Make it very clear. Give them permission. It's okay to take risks. It's okay to be creative. And then don't punish them for something that you're trying to encourage. That's where sometimes the coaches are unfair. They want this and then they cheer you out. And then that kid's like, he or she won't overreact. They'll just never do it again. Coach, in terms of when you say give them permission, is this something like maybe a standard that you'll just address at the beginning of a season when you get with the team that you encourage this? Or is it more, hey, this drill is designed for us to let's take some risks, let's be creative. And that's kind of the permission you say, like in this drill, explore. It's a bit of both. So give them the terms of engagement. You know, say, hey, uh, what we're going to value here is some creativity. So whether it's a driving kick drill, you know, so you might be three on four plus one. So there's an advantage, pitch it. You know, if you throw an effective pass that's fancy, we're going to celebrate that. And within reason, if it goes out of court, we're going to look away. You know, we're not going to say, hey, Pat, it's okay. Yeah, good boy. We're not going to acknowledge it that way, but we're not going to chase you. But I think the big thing is one size fits one. You'll have some kids that you're trying to reel in that. They think they're Arovich, like every pass. But then there's other kids that think they're Bob Cousy, like, you know, just playing like they're, you know, in the 60s. So one size fits one, you know, and usually the high achievers, you know, that kid is really good in the classroom. They've been really diligent. Every coach has loved them, but they maybe don't take risks because they value that you got to get across their flight path or your assistant does and say, hey, man, to go to the next level for you, we need you to bring some juice. But make sure you tell the other coaches, hey, man, I've just encouraged him to do this. You know, when he goes behind the back, don't chew him out. we got to go on this journey together. Coach, I guess my just last follow-up to this is, and you've answered it a little bit, but, you know, I feel like on the way to creativity, the road there is sort of paved with turnovers and probably poor decisions to get there. And you kind of mentioned about how to coach through that without, I guess, going back to losing games or putting the team in a hole. So I guess the balance of fostering creativity, learning through messiness and mistakes, but also not getting beat night in, night out through it. Yeah, well, years ago, coaches would talk about a practice skill and a game skill. And remember, I'm a thousand years old. So the three-point shot was new. Who could shoot it? Was it a good shot? Now there's what, 70 or 80 a game. You know, you look at that mid-80s Boston Lakers series, There, I think there was in one game, there was nine total threes. But coaches would say, okay, well, Dan, you've got, you can shoot that in practice. So I don't mind you. Like if you step out on a pick and pop, you can shoot that three. But come game, you haven't earned the right to do it in games yet. It was almost, I don't know if you have it, like pen license. You know, when you're infant school, you draw in with a crayon and then you get your pen license. Now you can write them. And you can still do that. You know, right now, that's not something we want in the game, but I want you to keep looking at that. I want you to keep exploring that. And that, 
you don't then have to go, okay, thou shalt do it in a game now, but they'll get a feel for when they're competent at it. It's not warm and fuzzy and it's not, hey, uh, anarchy rules, go out there and play like Pete Maravich. There's only ever been one of him, you know, just trying to strike that balance. But again, more conversations. Coach, when you said practice skills versus game skills, as a coach, when you feel like we always practice good, but it doesn't translate to the games and you talk to your staff like, man, you know, in practice, we're doing this, 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 and then you get in a game and it's not translating. What would you say then as a coach, maybe how he's missing or viewing his or her practice that obviously they're missing that's leading to the results in the game? First thing is context. How do we practice? Do we practice enough of things that happen in a game? Do our drills look like what happens in a game? So context, because sometimes we run beautiful practices. And I know when I was coaching, I was guilty of it. I'd have this, you know, like my practice plans were 6 to 6.07 ball handling, 6.07 to 6.9.5 drink break. You know, like it's not how anything works except maybe the military. So are we doing enough game-like things? Are we competing enough in practice? Have we got enough things in practice where there's a consequence? You know, or are we just practicing? So they're the first two. Yeah, the really good coaches don't run a drill without some sort of competition. So it just becomes what you do consistently. Colleague of mine says counting is a discipline. So, you know, if you're doing shooting drills, well, everyone's going to count because that's going to help us be under pressure, you know, in a overtime game because we know how to communicate and stay with discipline so that'd be the two big things and then i think lineups are big with that too often we say oh god we're not transferring but then we look out and we're consistently impacted by having the incorrect lineups on but let's have a lineup that gives us a chance you know obviously you're going to start the best players but who can help now you know i think sometimes we talk about interventions before Sometimes we don't execute in games because we don't intervene early enough or well enough. You know, but again, I haven't lost a game in seven years, nor made a coaching error. So I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Coach, you're off the star sub sit hot seat. Thanks for going through and answering all those start sub sit questions for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I held myself to account. I didn't <laughs> it, so. Coach, we've got. A final question for you before we wrap up, but before we do, really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on and being so thorough today with us. This was a blast. No, you're welcome. I'm really humbled by the opportunity, fellas. So thank you. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Coach, our final question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Watching practices, going from a very young age, just in those days, I'd write letters on parchment with a quill pen to coaches, hey, can I come watch? And often they'd say, what do you want? And say, no, just to watch. And then the year after, I'd be back and maybe they'd give you a practice plan. Then you'd build relationships. But to me, they're like live clinics. You just got to watch a lot of practices and different levels. Don't get locked into, hey, I, you know, I can only go watch Greg Popovich or I'm not going to watch anyone. You know, watch the best youth coach in your city. They're probably the best and most successful for a reason. So watch them. But it sounds simple, but yeah, just go into as many practices as you can to learn your craft. All right, Pat, welcome to the wrap party. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anytime. That was fun. Recording with an Australian coach is always interesting because we're working with all these different time zones. So, yeah. you know, recording at close to midnight for me, early in the morning for you. I think it was five his time. He's somewhere 2024, maybe at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
we always think like it's yeah we'll do it wednesday and then i got to remember it's but that's tuesday for you yeah and thursday for him so what a fun conversation we were joking right before we hopped on here though about something about australian coaches just a lot of fun really self-deprecating obviously super knowledgeable and yes we always find ourselves wishing we could just go grab a quick beer with them after definitely really do the after party to wrap up that way (laughs) yeah yeah do it right just to get into it we've heard from a lot of people about how great coach is about all these things that he hit on today and i think that he showed it and why he's such a great coach of coaches and why he's so good at developing coaches we kind of stuck a little bit on the younger up-and-coming coach but i know he's not just for that i know he coaches seasoned coaches as well and i just have two pages of notes here of stuff that i took away from this conversation same here yeah i really enjoyed his thoughts as we kind of get into it i think what stood out especially in our first part of developing coaches the power of three is what he mentioned i mean i just like the terminology Mm -hmm. but if you can have three things that you're going to teach in certain aspects like that gives like now you're you can teach or now like you can proceed and know what to correct and know what to instill in your players. I thought it was just a really good way of framing things for coaches. So yeah, I think sometimes when we're in the conversation of up and coming or starting out, it can feel overwhelming at times or there's so much to correct. And as I think we've kind of learned, it's, and I think he referenced, you know, if you try to correct everything or hold everything of importance, then really nothing is. Yeah, that was a great way to frame it, like you mentioned, because there's so many great platforms out there to learn and to grow as a coach and then it's almost daunting about like what do you actually believe in what is at your core and i liked how he mentioned it of okay learn as much as you can watch as much as you can dive into everything you can but then when it comes down to it you know getting to three main things it's beneficial for you as a coach but then also really beneficial for your players because then they ultimately know what it is that they're supposed to do out on the court i had that written down as well yeah, definitely. I mean, like you said, it's beneficial because of that psychological advantage that they can just kind of hold on to three things much easier than if you just keep giving them more and more. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. I mean, I, I like to his flight path coaching. I mean, we've heard that too, coach on the fly, but yep. just continuing to hear thoughts, continuing to hear different verbiage or how they view it and the importance of it Yeah, and building connections. And then the conversations we kind of went down with then being able to put demands or criticize and how these are important buffers or safety nets to make sure as a coach, you can keep pushing and you're going to get proper responses and not tuning out. For sure. Yeah. I also wrote flight path coaching. I put two stars next to it. It's almost like we're finishing each other's uh, sentences, but (laughs) I thought the same thing. It was sort of in that same conversation too, or maybe it's a little bit later, but he mentioned walking meetings as like another way of connecting. And personally, I've try to do that as much as I could this year. Someone else had talked about that as ways to just not have a player come in, sit in your office. And it just immediately establishes coach player. You're here on there. Like he mentioned the hierarchy. And I think that people in general, whether it's player coach or whatever, like when you're kind of walking and talking, there's just more of an ease into a conversation. I think too, like when a player doesn't have to sit and like look you directly in the eye is really helpful where they can just kind of walk and talk. Also, too, I know coaches talk about shooting around with players and discussing things yeah. while they're shooting is just an easier access point than always like having that regular meeting. And so I really liked his thoughts on that. And just those are really 
kind of minor ways that do make a big difference when it comes to the connection and stuff that he was talking about. So I enjoyed that as well. Yeah. You're always going to get more honest conversations. Like you said, when you just remove the hierarchy dynamic of it. Yeah. Quickly start sub sit. We bounced around a bunch of different ideas beforehand, but the second one, I didn't know which question you were going to go with. It was kind of a yeah. a mystery to me because we didn't know, but I like the one you went with, with the creativity toughness. I think that led to a really nice conversation about creativity. So kudos to you. Yeah, a hundred percent. I like kind of his response when he just thought that the current generation is less creative or less courageous. So I really enjoyed his response to that as why and how we as coaches can get it out of them and build an environment that encourages it. And for sure, I think the big thing was the body language, you know, mm -hmm. I think we always try to have as many conversations as possible of how you coach through the mess because it's inevitable. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's a huge secret, but I don't remember really us talking much about body language, but just like you can't show a reaction because you still want to encourage it, even if it was a turnover or a bad pass. Right. I thought it was interesting that he started that and he thought about that so much because this generation of kids coming up are probably the most skilled ever. Like, yeah, the kids are so skilled at all levels. And so you would think with having so much skill, they would almost be able to be more creative naturally because they have the ability to do it in his opinion not as much that was interesting for me the improving the one-on-one -on -one question came from i'd heard him somewhere else talking about one-on-one -on -one, and so i wanted to dive in a little bit more on it and i thought it was really interesting about the dribble limit him sitting it and basically hating it in one-on-one -on -one drills because i think that's like the first thing people think about oh if i want to make the one-on-one -on -one drill better is do a three dribble limit. And I'll say this, I've been guilty hundreds of times doing that myself. I definitely took that away where I probably won't use a dribble limit anymore. Go more to a shot clock, which I like. Yeah. Making them make a decision faster and make a move within the shot clock, but give them as many dribbles as I guess needed. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think my big takeaway from that conversation too was when we were talking about shot spectrum, he mentioned basically like having the little quick conversations after mm -hmm. them, like, good shot, bad shot. But what was important to me or what I took away is when he said, when you're asking for their opinion, usually don't respond, you know? Yeah. Then other times, you know, then the next time maybe they won't, or they're just maybe going to try to then tell you what you want to hear. But right. I thought that was really important teaching development moment of when you ask for an opinion, try not to respond. He had so many good points, the whole podcast, like just about reactions to stuff, dealing with mistakes, little things that, you know, Punting the ball when the player makes a mistake wasn't something he teaches. <laughs> well, didn't didn't make the cut. Yeah, yeah. Slamming the scores table and <laughs> yelling isn't a correct response to creativity. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, hey, just quickly as we wrap up, anything? Just maybe we wish we would have went a little deeper on, or we could have had we had more time. For me, I had two ideas. You know, one was just some innate abilities that maybe they tried to develop or they've thought about, but just you know, it's just something either got it or not. I don't know how great of a conversation that would have been because it's uh -huh. something that maybe we can't develop, but just hearing what he's noticed in coaches that are good to elite and maybe just some skills or characteristics that... You're talking about coaches, right? Not players? Coaches. I thought the same thing. I had written down about spotting talented coaches. And is there some kind of defining trait in a, say, 20 to 30-year-old coach that he sees coming up that really sticks out that you could tell that coach is going to make it. Yeah. I had that written down to ask too. So, okay. Yeah. We both blew it. Yeah. 
And then my my other one would just be, I think we focused a lot on like maybe the practice side, but developing an in-game coach and how he's helping uh-huh. coaches that way was another, I think, a conversation that I wish I asked or if we had more time, I definitely would have loved to have heard his thoughts on. Yeah, that could be another podcast with him. Yeah, true. I think, yeah, it's not a quick tangent in and out. Right. You kind of stole mine that I talked about, so I might wrap this wrap up faster. We have the same blind spots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, right. That's, that's right. I think just real quick, Australia, all these coaches, I mean, really enjoy as we get to know more and more coaches from there, how they go about teaching the game from the youth level and up. And I know that they're like so committed to coaching development. Mm-hmm. And you can see that with someone like him, who's you know director of high performance, you know, and all that for basketball australia i mean they're in good hands and you can see why they're developing the way they are so really enjoyed sitting down with him today yeah i agree and they're super intentional in everything they do i mean to steal his kind of vocab and thoughtful and i think we've always been impressed with on air off air all the australian coaches we've had the pleasure of talking hoops with absolutely and someday a beer with yeah eventually (laughs) yeah all right well i'm gonna go to sleep you uh get some cereal yeah (laughs) we'll do this next time Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> <laughs>